0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver Newsroom. I'm Kirk Point, editor in chief. We're on summer hiatus now until August the 12th. Meanwhile, we're running some interviews that we really enjoyed and you know, you'll enjoy again listening to. My guests today have produced, inarguably, the strongest work of journalism about the 2017. British Columbia election, in particular, the dramatic upheaval and overhaul of leadership and governance after a 16-year rule by the BC Liberals. A Matter of Confidence is a quickly assembled book published by Heritage Publishing, and its authors are two veteran Victoria-based journalists, Rob Shaw of the Post Media Chain and Richard Zussman of Global News. Thanks a lot for coming, guys. Thank you. Hey, yeah, Kirk, thanks for having us. We're going we're gonna to develop, I, I hope, um, pretty extensively into the book, its findings, their thoughts. Um with a book like this, first off, you've got to have participation. You can't do this third hand. how um how did you reach out? And how did you get everybody in? Because you got everybody in? Yeah, well, I think
1: we owe um, a debt to Christy Clark in particular mm. uh, and John Horgan and Andrew Weaver for from the beginning, being agreeable to participate in this. And we know that many of the people we talked to, talked to them first, oh, made yeah. sure that their former or current bosses were okay with participating. <laughs>
0: you were checked out. And yes. Clark,
1: to her credit, gave everyone the green light. We talked yeah. to 70 people uh, uh, over and wrote the book over eight weeks, and we got very few no's, and they were some people who'd never spoken before to the media. So they were it was a new world
0: for us to but talk to. But doesn't it surprise you a little bit, yes. Richard, that, that you know, especially someone like Clark who could arguably have said, wait a minute, this is just – there's too much going on in my mind here. I'm going off on a remote island for a couple of years, and uh, <laughs> I'm not, not going to talk to you right away.
2: And She was on her island home at some point during the process, uh, but when she came back to Vancouver, we got her in the sweet spot, I think. It was late August, early September. Mm-hmm. Things had just started to sink in in terms of her leaving politics, but not sink in enough to the point where she shut out and says, I'm not talking any more about this. So we, we got very lucky with the timing. And I think you mentioned how quickly this all got assembled a big part of The success is because of that. We wouldn't have been able to get these people now. They were ready to talk then. And I think everybody, Clark especially, wants to have their part of history enshrined. They have their thoughts and comments about what unfolded. And there are a lot of public perceptions. And I think a lot of them wanted to use the book to try in their mind to correct some of those public perceptions.
0: Yeah, at at the risk of undue flattery here. uh, (laughs) A lot of Bob Woodward's books uh, for a certain period of time have had the same feel to it, which is – there's a there's a big theme out there. There's a big issue. I'm going to go tackle it. I'm going to get people to inter, to be interviewed, and I'm going to publish it super quickly and get it out. It it almost works like uh you know a hundred plus a couple hundred plus pages of a magazine article. Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean there are pros and cons to the timing. We got raw emotion from some people like they hadn't adjusted to the fact they'd lost government or were in government. Um, I think if you wrote it now, you would get different stories. Maybe. And we certainly didn't capture all the secret stories, but you might get stories from people trying to rewrite history a little bit. And we caught yeah. them just at the point where everyone was still around and kind of hopefully honest about- They didn't have time to fabricate. That's right. Saying. And you know, lots of people want to go back and shift things now. So I think we hit the right time. What would,
0: but tell me, what do you think? You, you alluded a bit to it, Richard. What do you think they were each trying to explain? Start, um, start with Christy.
2: Yeah, so I think what she wanted to do was to correct the perception that she cost her party and herself the premier's job. I think, in essence, she um, says that she was more forthcoming on issues around housing affordability uh, than policy actually dictated. But because of decisions in the cabinet room, uh, they went a certain direction. So I think part of it is trying to explain why things fell apart in her own words you know one part and it's a small part of this big story but the the i am linda uh hashtag and social media storm around a woman that clark ran into at a grocery store in north vancouver and a lot was reported on at the time about who was linda and, you know, we did independent journalism at the time that found she's just a woman that ran into Clark and didn't like her and, and spoke to her. But Clark, but Clark still is still insistent
0: to that story that yeah. she was a plant by the NDP. And
2: paid for by the NDP. And that's one of those things, right? It's, right. She wanted, I, I think, t- to send the message that that's what she firmly believes and still believes it and that that was detrimental to her. It's a, it's a strange understanding Christy Clark is one of the toughest things yeah, that Rob, I think Rob and I have had to do Yeah, Rob, career. pick up on that. I mean, oh. because
0: you, you've obviously covered her in a whole other way. Yeah. And now here she is somewhat bereft of her power um and in a very different state. What do you think she was trying to work through? With I uh, there are many layers to Christy Clark, you know, the premier that we
1: saw and the politician and the person. The I don't mom. know I don't know if we caught them all, but I think she's she and some of the liberals are worried about how history is going to remember them. And in particular First. the liberals spent a lot of their time balancing budgets. And, you know, they were the first to come in after Gordon Campbell to, you know, reset the budget after the recession. And they cut and they cut and they fiddled and they got skated by on the margin. And it was tough work. But history doesn't remember them as fondly as Gordon Campbell's 180 pivots on the new relationship (laughs) with First Nations or the carbon tax. And I think she's a bit worried that all that work they put into being fiscal managers is kind of now looked back on as as uh, chipping away at services and being miserly. And and they, it's a very, I mean, we didn't write the definitive version of Christy Clark's legacy and history is going to have to spend more time. But I think it'll be tough for them to justify the things that they did because they were, she was focusing on year-to-year governing and year-to-year budgeting and she doesn't get the same credit Gordon Campbell did.
0: Yeah, but Richard, did you you sense that she was worrying that she was going to be defined by these, late, late term issues for sure. rather than all that she had done.
2: Yeah, I think for sure. Yeah. I think what this interview wasn't for her was a job interview. I think some former politicians like to speak out afterward because they're sending a message to possible companies who would hire them. She wasn't doing that. I think you hit exactly what she was trying to achieve here is a lot of what the Liberals had done through their term in terms of strong fiscal management, uh, strong employment, booms in tourism, you know, the Massey replacement was a big legacy project, Site C, um, but a lot of that was forgotten around issues around affordability, around uh, Political donations. So I think she was trying to reset the record in terms of achievements, mm. rather than you know many of the questions people had, which ultimately led to the Liberals losing power in that 2017 election.
0: Yeah, Richard Zussman and Rob Shaw are my guests. Uh, they're the authors of the new book, A Banner of Confidence. Rob, let's pick up then on what you think John Horgan was trying to do. Here he was, newly shaped as mm. a as a different kind of leader, all of a sudden. Again, what was he trying to bring to your book, do you think, in order to set a tone or something?
1: Well, he's a new John Horgan, and we chronicle yeah. <laughs> the evolution of the guy who didn't want the job as NDP leader Definitely. to the one who sparred with the media all the time and was very frustrated with his own party and staff. Hulk, to the new, Hulk Horgan. Hulk Horgan. <laughs> to yes. the new kind of happy warrior. And he is dramatically different. And I think yeah. he was he wanted to get across that idea that um, he's, he's more positive as premier than he ever was before. That he mm. was in, he had to be negative as opposition leader. That's right. But now he can govern his way, and we see the government slowly pulling back to more of what we originally chronicle as John Horgan's positions when he decided to become leader. And he's had to veer away from them, and he's getting back to them. And I think he's starting to show us the original John, but with a new kind of finish on top, where he he's a lot more engageable and he, he's authentic. You know, and that's one of the yeah. things we we know from covering him is that. You know, we we chronicle this guy who didn't really want the premier's job versus Christy Clark, who seemed
0: aggressively pursuing power and that difference. So, so was, was he uncomfortable as an opposition guy, Richard? Where he was always like, "Mr. No, yeah, so, Mr. You, you're doing a bad thing, guy."
2: Yeah, and that's that's the toughest thing about opposition compared to governing, right? It's I think people fail to understand that in some essences in politics is that the opposition isn't supposed to be an alternative government. They're not government. They could be a government awaiting if we're getting close to an election, but they are there to oppose what the government is doing. And that's a different mentality than actually governing. So I think Horgan struggled with that. Back to the original question around, you know, what Horgan wanted to get out of the interview, I think for many people that we interviewed, they felt the same way Rob and I did about being part of history. Like, this yeah. was incredible. Like, these meetings, you know, the, the lieutenant governor's decision, mm-hmm. the confidence vote, this is history. And most people don't get to live through history. And
0: they wanted to get it down. They
2: did. They wanted, they wanted to, get to get it, it down. On, they wanted to share somewhere. it. Yeah. They, they wanted to explain their part of history. Yeah. Like, I think people were excited. As, as excited as we were to write it, I think people were as excited to speak about their role in it.
0: Yeah. And Andrew Weaver, what did he <laughs> want out of this? It's, in in in, the, in this
2: space? It's an interesting, I, I think he felt he had to be part of it. You know, he, he was a huge player in this. Again, that excitement. Yeah. Um, he is one of the most unique and fascinating political figures I've ever seen. He yeah. is a guy who is clearly operating at a level above where we operate in terms of, Brain strength. He's one of the greatest climate scientists uh, this country has produced. He's you know part of a Nobel Prize winning team, Um, and then he entered politics, which was very much out of his comfort zone. And he still struggles on a daily basis to figure out the grind and decision making involved in politics. And I think he just did it because we asked him. And I think he is happy. He does is happy to talk to reporters. He's happy. He's written books in the past as well. I I think he really liked being part of the book project.
0: We're, we're going to explore his own role and, and the role of the Green Party here as we as we move along in the conversation. But I, what struck me in reading uh, the book and and your chapters on Gordon Campbell and on Christy Clark and on John Horgan, was how all of them appeared to operate in certain respects as lone wolves. There was a bit of a solitude about them and all of that. Do you think that that's a thread that runs through this kind of leadership? All it's, throughout. It's
1: lonely being the premier. Everyone wants something from you. You don't know who you can trust. And John Horgan has a very small circle of people he actually listens to. That's one of his defining characteristics. And he's gonna have to wrestle with that when he's isolated in that premier's office and everyone is trying to take advantage of him in some sort of way. Um it, it's interesting. Gordon Campbell, I mean, he operated so differently than Christy Clark. Um he just basically you know, was his own minister uh, for every file. He knew it better than his own MLAs. And he decided what was happening and he made it happen. And if you fell on the wrong side of Gordon Campbell, he would micromanage you out of existence to the point where cabinet ministers are crying in meetings. Christy Clark was part of that at the beginning and she deliberately did not want to be Gordon Campbell. And so she didn't pivot government to her whims the way that Campbell did. And it was a different style. Maybe it meant that
0: it didn't look like they were doing as much, but it was a deliberate move on her part. But she had also a, a kind of a, not a loneliness, but a, but an individuality mm-hmm. that, that uh, furnished her with, I guess, whatever energy she had as a leader, but also kept her somewhat detached from a, from a surrounding pool of talent in a lot of ways, it can isolate you in an office like that, can't it?
2: Yeah, I remember speaking to her uh, before the last election about who are your friends? Like when you had a crummy day at work, who do you go home and pick up the phone and call? And she said Brad Bennett, who was the campaign co-chair and uh, you know the son of uh, Bill Bennett oh, yeah. and the grandson of uh, W.A.C. Bennett. And that answer always miffed me. Like, you know, great, Brad could be a close friend and confidant, but he's a political confidant and friend. And and when you have a crummy day, I think you want to separate yourself from the work you do. She was never able to do that. So I think she found it very isolating, all-consuming. You know, it, it occupied her, you know, Hamish, her son became such a part, and he's in the book a lot as well, because yeah. he became a huge part of her dialogue around connecting with people. You know, she was a single mom. She wanted the best for Hamish's generation. And I think that, All of that is sort of what makes up Christy Clark. But it is a tough, as Rob mentioned, everybody wants something from you. uh, And it's a very tough job to deliver for everyone.
1: You see her surround herself with the same people, uh, especially the beginning and end of her premiership. Mike McDonald, her longtime friend. Mark Marison, her ex-husband. You know, her brother is in the mix. Uh, You know, she has a loyal group that she listens to. And when she was under fire at the beginning uh, and at the end, that
0: was her brain trust. They almost bookended her... Mm -hmm. Her leadership career, right? And
1: in between, she actually had chiefs of staff who were not hyper-partisan, liberal uh, Christy Clark acolytes, you know, Mm -hmm. Dan Doyle, who's a longtime engineer, Steve Carr, who led the LNG file. These weren't people who swore allegiance to, you know, the Liberal Party, the same way that Martin Brown did for Gordon Gordon Campbell. Campbell, They they weren't executioners. And so there's a weird period of her governing with people who aren't in her brain trust, and then elections where... Clearly, we heard from cabinet ministers, you'd say one thing to Christy Clark, but she was listening to that small group of friends and confidants from the past.
0: And John Horgan, as our premier now, is he isolating himself too? Does he have a a, a solitude about his leadership style,
2: do you think, Richard? I think he's figuring that out. I think life has changed a lot for John Horgan. Uh, You know, we tell one story in the book about uh, a the cross game that he went to in new west when his beloved victoria shamrocks were playing the victoria salmon bellies and a group of guys who had had a little bit too much to drink oh yeah he got heckled or something yeah, yeah, yeah. it came up and, and it said you know something about the tolls and horgan said thanks for saving me money and he was chirping back and forth and they got into the rcmp vehicle and at one point the officer turns and shows her weapon to the people who are coming towards horgan and they sort of back off and they all get in the vehicle and Sheena McConnell, who's the press secretary, says to him, you can't do that anymore. You're the premier. You can't engage with these people. He says, well, they're wrong. I wanted to tell them they're wrong. And and he's learning about elements. And his mm. wife, Ellie, who I've interviewed a few times, um, is his rock. And she, um, I think, provides a sense of normalcy to him and, and – um, gets him away from that isolation. But in the office he's working his way through. He still has Jeff Meggs is his only chief of staff so far, the former Vancouver City Councilor. And the team around Horgan is all the same team that came in last summer. Um at some point there'll be changes there and then we'll get to see, but he still I think is working out how the staff works and and mm-hmm. how he operates sort of in in that silo and how he can, you know, best engage with people in a larger sense.
0: I think in journalism, uh, most of us would say that every election campaign changes our perceptions of our institutions, of uh, our notions of leadership, of um, certainly of the personalities and all that. Uh, So we had this election. It was pretty transfixing and transformational. (laughs) But I wanted to know about writing the book for both of you and how that changed some of your own impressions of what constitutes leadership and and how how those perceptions have changed, Rob?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, chronicling John Horgan's journey, um, you got to give the guy full credit for, in the most stressful moment of his life in an election campaign, changing. Like he, he, and we chronicle a bit of that in the book, how he got to the point where people were giving him advice. One key advisor, Marie Della Mattia, saying, John, you know, when you get a question you don't like, you can still turn it around into something you want to say. It's not an attack on you. And he. He shifted and he and he grew and you got to I mean you have to give the guy credit for emerging as a different John at a at a spectacularly
0: <laughs> intense. What moment. did that inform in you? Do you think? Well,
1: I think that that, that he's um, that he's rising to the job as some people rise mm-hmm. at just the right moment and that they they become the premier or the leader that everyone hoped John Horgan would be when they encouraged him to run. They saw this guy who could be the premier that he is now, and he wasn't even close to there. <laughs> and he has gone on this journey to get there. And it how transformational it can be in a very short period of time, if you're willing to do it in politics, to become your authentic self and connect with the electorate.
2: Yeah. Richard? Yeah. Well, how human these people are. I hope if people read the book and when they read it, that they get a sense of who these people are as individuals. And I think in In our coverage, in my day-to-day workings with these people, we see them as human beings. But when they make decisions, they seem bigger than that. And and it's worth remembering that these are human beings who are making decisions and all those things. And I think also in studying the book, um, the you learn about the uh, sincere, how supportive there are people in that caucus of John Horgan. And I think one of the People that's important here is Finance Minister Carol James because of the role she now fills, yeah. and how John Hort, Premier Horgan had her back when she was in trouble and ended up losing the leadership, and in turn she had his back. And that element I think often gets lost in sort of the nitty gritty day to day. Just political. the
0: hard loyalty that has to take place for success.
2: Yeah, and and mm-hmm. that loyalty I think. Is huge. Yeah. And and you need people like that. Adrian Dix is another one. He could have walked away after, Definitely. you know, a really tough loss in the 2013 election, one where everybody thinks he should have won. And he came and became one of the most loyal soldiers for Horgan and was rewarded by being health minister. And I think those two former leaders really make up, um, you know, Horgan's core in terms of the political side of things in cabinet.
0: Yeah. So the 2017 election, uh, needless to say, was a practically a dead heat. And going into the campaign, most thought that housing affordability would be the issue, uh, perhaps economic stewardship, especially if you were a liberal, you wanted that to be your uh, your issue. I was taken by your focus in the book on what might be a seemingly small issue, but had meaning, which was Bridge tolls. (laughs) Yeah. Bridge tolls. He
1: felt it was symbolic in a way of a different kind of NDP campaign. So the the campaign director is a a gentleman named Bob Dewar, came from the outside. He wasn't part of the repeated losing team of New Democrats that had stumbled through the last few elections. Mm -hmm. And he came in and he set a tone with bridge tolls where he said – and we chronicle in the book how he reads the liberal position in the paper one day and within three hours has completely changed the NDP's position – invented from scratch scrapping bridge tolls and got Horgan to announce yeah, it in Syria. You,
0: you chronicle him walking into the office <laughs> yeah. and kind of creating a firestorm.
1: Hey, he just threw the paper down and he, he he was angry and he swore and he said, we, we're, we're getting rid of tolls right now, which was not their position. The NDP's position was an even lesser cut no. to tolls and the liberals. So in that sense, you know, I mean, tolls was a big issue, south of the Fraser, in certain ridings, but we put it in there also to show that The NDP campaign ran differently. It wasn't, it often gets deadlocked on the policy committee and, you know, the platform. And we saw in 2013, it wouldn't change. It was, you know, they were so obsessed with that that they couldn't maneuver. And this campaign was fly by the seat of your pants when you need to. It was
0: very reminiscent of the liberal campaign in 2013. Right. They stole a lot of the mojo. The two of them seemed to switch personalities. (laughs) One became a safe campaign and the other one became a, I would say a riskier campaign.
2: And you mentioned the stewardship of the economy. That's what the liberals wanted. That's what they sent Christy Clark out to do. We have Mm -hmm. balanced budgets. We have a strong economy. If you hand over the reins of power to the NDP, we don't know what they're going to do. They're going to spend like crazy and run the province into the ground. I think people expected more than that. And it comes back. Housing affordability was an issue. I think they saw the NDP as approaching affordability a little bit more in terms of childcare as well. And then. Back to the toll issue, when we talk about an election that ended up 43-41-3, basically a tie, but when you look at the ridings affected by tolls, two in Maple Ridge and the Surrey ridings, there was a gain of five for the NDP yep. in those ridings. And yep. that, you know, other way around, the liberals win 48 ridings and we have another four years of a Christie Clark government in a majority. So You guys
0: probably don't have a book. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, we don't have a yeah, book for yeah, sure. Yeah. The, the book really comes from the up Clark dynasty. Yeah, yeah that would the Clark a very different book. <laughs> yeah. But do you, do you think the liberals appreciate what that issue might have meant?
1: Well, there was some internal discussion about it, but I don't think uh, they expected. I mean, the argument from Mike DeYoung, and we have to remember that Mike DeYoung was carrying a lot of weight at this point, and it was that the government can't absorb the debt of these bridges if you scrap the tolls. Now, right. I, we have proven since that it can. And it has not made a difference to V.C.'s credit rating. But what that there was a lot of attention paid to Mike Diong, And we, we talk about him in the book, mm-hmm. how key an ally he was for Christy Clark and how good he was at balancing the budget in the early years, but
0: how perhaps
1: he was the wrong finance
0: minister at the time when they started well, spending. Be, because, of course, it came to light that the province w- did have a surplus. Mm-hmm. And you guys surmise that he must have known that he must have known that he was sitting on a couple of billion dollars and that rather than loosen the purse strings and perhaps make promises, that they held course. Um, Richard, was that
2: the tactical error? I think that's a huge tactical error. I think when you have the money to spend uh, and still show that you have a a substantial surplus and, and good financial management, you spend it. So I think in hindsight... Uh, It would be hard to get Mike DeYoung to admit to making a fatal error here, but they had the opportunity to do something – Historic in terms of investments, and and that's what you know. We haven't got into it yet, but that's what the clone speech would have done. This right. this throne speech that the liberals presented before they were de- defeated, all of those things would have fallen fine underneath. By this which time surplus, it
0: was publicly understood that, had that there was two point six yep, billion dollars. Yep, exactly. you know, surplus. I mean, is, does Mike DeYoung just live with a denial about this? I don't because th- you couldn't get him to say that he really knew. I think. Well, I mean, Mike DeYoung is not.
1: Uh, the kind of guy who um, is hiding who he is, and we've outlined his frugal history in <laughs> yes. the book. Yeah. he Everyone knew the kind of budget he was preparing, and it's on Clark that she left him in there to do that. He deliberately, in all his budgets, was so cautious that you ended up with a giant surplus at the end of the year, and that's what they wanted, to show that they had been good managers of the economy by a surplus at the end. And they like the idea of being able to pay down debt, which is something the New Democrats are not going to be doing at all because they're spending every penny. Yeah. And in fact, uh, you know, the debt is increasing at a massive rate under the NDP as well. So the liberals thought people would like that idea of paying off the debt. And instead, the electorate was more of the idea of, you've got money, we're hurting, we need some
0: more help. And they yeah. didn't recognize that. In terms of the, their own recrimination as a party, Do you think the Liberals sufficiently apprehend, Richard, that people were hurting in certain respects and that they had the opportunity to minister and essentially bypassed an an opportunity that... Could have sustained their power.
2: Yeah, I think I think there's a big understanding of that, and and you heard that through the leadership campaign, right? Andrew mm. Wilkinson, the new leader, spoke about that extensively during the campaign. That they made some tactical errors in terms of not addressing affordability. That's where you could plunk a lot of this money into housing, into child care, into But transit. they did
1: do that, you know. Yeah, we well, chronicle time- that. It, that in fact, and people forget this: the pre-election budget had hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in housing and childcare. Child care. And money. the reason none of us covered it is because Christy Clark had uh, embroiled herself in the allegations that the NDP had hacked the Liberal website. Yeah. <laughs> and it overshadowed money that, in retrospect, had the Liberals just done a stand-pad budget and put that money in the campaign platform, they would have looked like they were investing in those issues. But Christy Clark's lack of discipline Kind of rolled over that. Sorry thing. to interrupt you. No, there. No, no, no. I, th- I
2: think that's a good point because also it's about the slogans, right? And there's been a lot of debate about the ten dollar a day childcare or fifteen dollar minimum wage, but these are things that resonated with people and stuck in their minds. And the liberals lacked.
0: I'm still trying to figure out who came up with putting people first. It was <laughs> right. was there like was there a previous government well, that, that put, put machines <laughs> yeah. or <That's> right. <laughs> animals first or businesses? That, I, I think that's uh, the uh, argument that right, the NDP uh, would okay. make because like Christy Clark yeah. donors her cor- or,
2: put her corporations okay. first than her. Owners. okay all right all right, <laughs> all right
0: all right all right but so so eventually there's this alliance that has to get built after uh, after all the counting has been done of the ballots and let's look a little bit how it was formed uh, and how you chronicle it in in the book and talk about the dynamics because the green party with a measly 3 seats had to be courted as if they had 35 seats
2: yeah uh, they had all the power right And that was ultimately what the math came down to. And the courting started early and it was bumpy. Like, none of the people around the table had any real sense of how to do this. The right. only guy that had any experience with this is Norman Spector, who mm. had never dealt with a minority government but had been in serious negotiations at the federal level as the chief of for Brian Mulroney, and before that working for Bill Bennett. And,
0: and not the usual suspect to be inside the green camp.
2: No, not politically. No. He was... And, and we've seen sort of that erode.
0: I've seen his Twitter stream. It, <laughs> yeah. Not, not a whole not lot anymore. In, not, no, not, no. Yeah, yeah. not much in common.
2: There. But it's But what's in common is they lived in the same circles, him and Andrew Weaver right. in Oak Bay, Oak Bay yeah, yeah. and the, the former public servants that have moved to that community, the former academics that are now living there. And these are who Weaver relied on to help him. And people told him Spectre was the guy, and so he came around the table. And there were a lot of rough bumps, like uh, Horgan really struggled in their first meeting. And Weaver you know, sent a message through uh, Matt Toner uh, to the NDP to say Oregon's got to tighten up those bootstraps because yeah. if the NDP comes back weak again, we're going to go with the liberals. Yeah.
0: Bring and your A game next time. Bring your A game. And mm-hmm. and that, yeah.
2: you know, it's, it was really fascinating. And then, you know, first now the MLA.
0: I want to talk about her. Mm. Yeah. I, because again, you rivet in on something that I thought very few have picked up on, which is that ultimately she was the deal breaker or maker in this case it May not have even been Andrew Weaver.
1: Yeah, I mean, the idea that Greens had all the power, but also none of the power, because Sonia Furstenau, uh, we chronicle in the book here, became at one point, you know, f- physically ill due to the stress uh, and the and the idea of having to support the Liberals. And at the beginning, Andrew Weaver. Preferred Christy Clark. They got along yeah. well. They had passed bills together. He and John Horgan hated each other uh, for several years in the legislature. They I just, have to say, during the
0: campaign, they looked like they were oh, not bosom buddies by any means.
1: No. So th- that began and almost like people thinking that they could go liberal. And Sonia Firstno heard very quickly from her constituents in a riding where people venomously disliked the liberals over because, a quarry. Because of? A Seanigan Lake contaminated soil dump that had got provincial approvals People had protested, and the liberal government just seemed to not care very much about mm. the problems. And they created inadvertently this opportunity for the Greens to win a riding to add an MLA who would be the deciding, basically a, a member of the Greens that would could not be brought on board the idea of supporting the Liberals. And it's that inadvertent consequence of
0: something yeah. that the government I, did. I know that that unintended consequence uh, is now a phrase that gets battered around for the NDP, but talk about an unintended consequence for the liberals
2: and and first now does not like this characterization that she was the one that dictated what happened she had a conversation and and we chronicle in this in the book halfway through negotiations right around the time she was sick because of the stress uh weaver asked her if she could actually think about this impartially could she honestly give the liberals a shake and she said yes Because she would have been replaced by Adam Olson, who was the other MLA who was part of the decision making, but not around the negotiating table. And Sonia was able to tell Andrew Weaver that um, to to trust her. And I think she at times opened up her mind enough, but ultimately the sticking point were on resource projects and and climate policy that Weaver just didn't think the liberals cared enough about uh, climate action plan and, and cutting carbon emissions.
0: Richard Zussman and Rob Shaw are my guests. They're the authors of A Matter of Confidence. It's the book about the 2017 British Columbia election and actually matters before that too. Uh, so how did the liberals let this one get away though? Because Andrew Weaver was an old federal liberal. Yeah. Um, it, It's possible he could have even decided he was going to take one of his MLAs with him and let let Sonia sit there as an independent somehow or that he had to do it. How did the liberals blow well they, this one? They never got to deliver their final proposal.
1: Uh, it collapsed before. Uh, and we chronicle how uh, Mike McDonald was chief of staff at that point. had stayed up all night before the last negotiating session, printing off this document that had been vetted by the caucus was going to uh, outline a, a new ministry that would help electrify the economy so that they could justify continuing site C and give mm-hmm. it a reason. And they never got to do it. And the, Christy Clark never got to come to the table either, which there's a lot of debate over whether that would have been any benefit to the Liberals anyways, (laughs) given Sonia Firstino's dislike of Christy Clark. But we know from dealing with her that she can be very personable and disarming. And that question of, should she have come to the table for the Liberals earlier and tried Mm -hmm. to, um, you know, uh, subtly introduce herself? What do you think she did? She was told by uh, uh, MLAs, uh, Mike Bernier, who was a good friend of Andrew Weaver's at the time and others that don't come. Because the Greens hate you, and they don't, and you will be actually a detriment to us. Yeah, and but, I don't know if that would have was been the right closer. Call.
2: She would have been the close. There was a plan. They had a flight booked for her to come over to close in the final meeting on the Monday, and uh, they never got to that meeting. Yeah,
0: that now must, that had, must be a regret for her because well, she she, she must believe that actually, if she had gotten in early and often, that she might have been the savior. She was. She was. Um, well, in talking to her,
1: uh, said there was never going to be a deal with the Greens. She never felt like they were going to oh. get it. She asked, yeah. you know, MLA suggested that they should go into the negotiations and offer things, and and they did. But she felt like they were never going to get there, that that they just couldn't do it. And so yeah. she wasn't surprised, I think, at the end. when
0: So then she had to do this strange <laughs> dance yeah. with the lieutenant governor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, your book's called A Matter of Confidence in the – Lieutenant Governor ultimately makes the call about confidence of a house and uh, whether a government can be formed and sustained. What did Judith Guichon have to work with here? What
2: was- so she had to work with not a whole lot of precedent. Like th- there hasn't been a lot of situations in Canadian history that have unfolded quite like this. So she consulted with constitutional experts and met in Ottawa with the governor general, David Johnson, to have a conversation about her decision. But ultimately, you know, our, our system would dictate the right choice is to give a chance to govern to a party that can form our group that can form a majority, which the Greens and the NDP could at that point. Mm-hmm. So then Guichon had this incredible meeting, and, and both of us were there that night at Government House where Clark arrived and she was in there for closing in on two hours. And all of us outside were thinking, she must be putting on the sales job of her life. (laughs) But what we later found out, and it's chronicled in the book, is she was only in for about 40 minutes with the Lieutenant Governor, and the conversation sort of switched from personal to politics. And very early on in that conversation, Clark knew that she wasn't going to be able to get Keisha. It was over. She offered her resignation. She asked for an election at that point, although she had said it many times, that she didn't want an election. She went in there and said, I want this election. And she could feel early on that just wasn't going to happen.
1: There's an argument out there, and we raised the question in the book, that had she gone about it differently, told everyone that she was going to ask for a new election instead of trying to pretend that she wasn't, but was. But I mean, that was clearly their plan. Had she been upfront about it in the days leading to it, had she gone into the meeting and then come out and told the public after her meeting that she had asked for an election, that she may have pressured the lieutenant governor yeah. to accept the advice of her first minister. And instead yeah. she artfully tried, because she was worried the public d- didn't want another election, she tried to get around that idea of what she was doing and then came out from government house and just basically said the lieutenant governor has retired, you know, retired to make her decision. I, she doesn't believe that that would have made a difference. It's, I guess it's an open question we won't know, but I think yeah. more honesty about what she was trying to do might have pressured the LG a bit more.
2: The LG would have had to have gone at that point and, and sought out constitutional advice because, you know, she did turn down the advice given to her by a first minister, but the public didn't know that. If she had gone out and told the public, the lieutenant governor would have had to have been seen as consulting and analyzing and waited a little bit longer, I think, to call Horgan. Ultimately, it may have been the same result, but it may not have been. That's what's fun about this book, too, is the sort of what-ifs could have happened in yeah, there different are, moments. There's there a are, bunch of them in there.
0: There are so many of them. And, and I mean, I, you you know, there were all kinds of stories around after that, that maybe Andrew Weaver had had dialogue with Christy Clark, and he had encouraged her to step down maybe a little later on. But no one expected her to be around for 2021. No. But were you surprised at the somewhat sudden nature of a departure in this case. It was neither so soon nor so late, somewhere kind of in the mm. you know, the, the early stage, but a, a kind of an awkward place. Well,
1: she did tell us that she never intended to be opposition leader, that she was going to quit in the summer, which is a surprise to the staff who she had hired to be <laughs> her opposition staff <laughs> yeah. and to some MLAs. I think um, th- that's what she said. She said she wanted to quit from the moment that Oregon became premier yeah. and th- her party kept asking her to stay. I mean, when she went in on the throne speech, changing all the party's positions, we have some quotes from Mike DeYoung and some other advisors who said to her, if you do this, you are all in. Like, you won't be able to serve as opposition leader having changed everything. Yeah. And she honestly believed and her closest advisors believed they were going to get a new election. They had sent uh, someone to the party, one of her top uh, deputy chief of staff to the party to plan the next election sitting there waiting for the election call on uh, on LG night. And it never came because they fundamentally misread the LG. But yeah. th- she pinned it all on an election call where she would not have been sticking around
0: as opposition leader. Hey, talk about that so-called clone speech, right? The one that uh, I think a lot of traditional liberals looked at and said, you didn't write this. There's no way you could have written this. This isn't who we are. Who who do you think held the pen there? <laughs> and there's, and there's Mike McDonald. Questions.
2: I think. Yeah, so Mike McDonald takes um, not credit. I guess is the wrong word, but he's the one responsible. <laughs> for, part, yeah, he's, yeah, he's responsible for writing it. Uh, but there, are, I've I've spoken to a few liberals since the book has come out, and they told me they they laugh about how quickly people distanced themselves from that speech that were a little bit more involved in the speech than they may have told us in the process of writing the book. So yeah. I think there were a lot of people around who understood what was going on and felt like this was their best play. At the time, and I, I still think this a little bit, it, it was partly trying to Maybe capture that one vote that you mentioned. Get Andrew Weaver to come over. There's a lot in there he likes. And, and Clark knew get already. An ND,
0: get an NDP MLA who was maybe going to be yeah. left out of cabinet to come over. All of those types of things.
2: And I think a lot of that is is real. And yeah. I think in the process of writing it and, and prosecuting a case over a week that there had to be another election called is, is a really fascinating part of, of what unfolded before that confidence vote.
0: So listen – I've almost made jokes about this in writing about Andrew Weaver issuing news releases about John Horgan's government. It seems at a greater pace than what he did with Christy Clark's government. And yet he has this confidence in supply agreement. Is it durable?
1: Well, as long as he's willing to huff and puff and not blow the house down, then I guess it is. I mean, I have a hard time Imagining the Greens in their worst nightmare would, uh, you know, during the supply negotiations have imagined an NDP government that uh, approved Site C and is promoting LNG with more vigorous tax breaks than the Liberals. I mean, that's a nightmare scenario for the Greens. And they find themselves stuck now having to justify continuing to prop up a government that is doing everything that they said they didn't is want it to do.
0: Simply to reach this uh, seeming holy grail of proportional representation via a referendum, Richard? Is that really what they, they're holding out for? Because it doesn't seem like anything is going to knock them out of the box here.
2: I think I'm in the minority, but I don't think so. What I think the holy grail is for Andrew Weaver is this climate action strategy that's going to come forward from the NDP this fall. Right. Okay. And he wants to be in the driver's seat of determining what is in that climate action policy. He's worked his whole career towards this. He entered politics because of it. I think- He feels like he's in a good position, Andrew Weaver does, that he can help work with George Heyman and the NDP government, Heyman's the environment minister, to build this climate action strategy. LNG puts a big hole in that for him because of the emissions. Mm -hmm. And so Weaver, I think, believes he can help create something um, that is defining for the province. If they don't get to that point then, I wonder what's going to happen. Proportional representation is obviously important for the long-term sustainability of a third party like the Greens, but I don't see it as the holy grail.
0: You both are there every day. Do you believe the NDP has its heart in proportional representation?
1: Mm. <laughs> no, no. And, and I, well, they've cooked. They've cooked the referendum in such a way that it, I, it's, it it's it's, it's going to be easiest it, to pass,
0: easiest possible path to pass. yeah. yeah. Even saying so. Doesn't the NDP realize that this would be their last majority government, or most likely their last majority Yeah, so it's not a majority
2: government, government now, right? Yeah, in it, yeah. So it's, so the, the situation would be similar to this. I think you look at the electoral map, and they're trying to occupy the space that is the federal liberals all the way left. And if they're able to do that, then they feel like they can govern right around 50% mark, and they can continue to govern. BC is a complicated place politically because it's so polarizing Mm -hmm. and the center is always up for grabs. And I think they feel they can grab enough of the center in Metro Vancouver and then occupy their traditional spaces to exist. So, you know, the PR, because of how close everything is, you have to assume that BC liberal voters are going to vote against and green voters are going to vote for uh, changing the electoral system. And then you have these NDP voters and we'll see where they end up.
0: Yeah. Here we are in early April. Uh, the Liberals have a new leader in Andrew Wilkinson, of course. He publicly says he's ready. Uh, the Greens seem to be sending out a news release every hour, as I say, about their <laughs> disappointment in the NDP. Who would least want an election today?
2: It's I don't, I don't think anybody really wants an election, I think. You money know. there's not a lot of money out there, you know, the the donation rules have changed. These parties are still struggling financially. Uh, so it'd be expensive to run these campaigns. I think the liberals have the most to gain by going back to the ballot box to take power. But the NDP, Horgan's enjoying governing. They want to stay in as long as possible. And the Greens are in a very strong position, again, with things like the climate action plan coming and the PR referendum, that I, I just don't think an election now benefits anyone. Um, and and I don't really foresee it coming anytime soon. But I, again, I could be in the minority there. I've had lots of debates with my colleagues at the press gallery about this exact issue.
0: Yeah. I mean, you you do hear provincial liberals say that they believe that there is an election in the offing before yeah, terribly I don't, I long. Don't well,
1: they, I mean, that argument that if Horgan called an election now, he could grasp a majority under first past the post and then push the, the Greens aside is,
0: but I mean- It's a tempting at, prospect it, for them.
1: They haven't made any inroads in the part of the province that they're shut out on, and that's right. the interior. And yeah. I think LNG might be a way slightly into that. But how would the NDP pick up any more seats in Metro Vancouver? How would they pick up any more seats in Vancouver Island? They have sort of they, they did as best as they could possibly have hoped in those areas, and now they got to pick up the rest of the province, and they yeah. haven't they haven't got there yet.
0: Well, in the time we have left, uh, a few minutes, uh, if you can look back now at this election, what do you think each of these principal parties has to do next time out?
2: I think the NDP, exactly to Rob's point, needs to show that they can connect outside of Metro Vancouver. I think in order to grow your base, you need to show that you can connect in rural parts of the province, but also honor your commitments in Metro Vancouver. The Liberals clearly need to humanize themselves and show that they can address affordability around sort of their core previous core voters and and affordability issues. And the Green Party needs to show that They are a separate party from the NDP. They have their own policies. They have their own values. They are different. They are not the NDP light. They are not NDP junior, that they are their own entity and and political party. And I think that of the three may be the biggest challenge. Yeah, Rob.
1: I mean, I'm still waiting to see, and I've said this before, uh, the extent to which the NDP's most recent budget is a a move towards what some people view as class warfare. And I think Mm -hmm. that there is a legitimate question to be asked there about – what the government plans to do on the haves versus the have-nots. And that may shift the dynamic a little bit on where the parties are coming from in the next election. And uh, I, I don't know if we totally understand their speculation tax and all of their measures and who, they're, who are they targeting there and what, what is it that they're actually trying to do and who are they appealing to. And, and they may
0: inadvertently um, have a bit of a backlash on their hands. On that. Do you believe, though, that they, they think that they've latched on to something akin to populism in this? <laughs> I think they do. I think they do. I think they, there's an appetite out there for the people who can't
1: afford to live as well as some other people to get a hand up at other people's expenses. And and there's a that's a weird world that we're heading into and the last budget foreshadows what could be a dark yeah. dive into a, an uncomfortable uh, area of BC politics. And I'm not sure the New Democrats really want to go there. That's not John Horgan that's, that's not the Horgan that we chronicle in the book, that class warfare guy, but that's an old NDP-ism that goes back to the Glenn Clark days that they may be reverting
0: back to. And yet, Richard, if if they do not deliver on things like affordable housing, here they have eight sitting MLAs in this city alone, yeah, uh, and some that are in Victoria, another city that is facing many of the same issues involving affordability, do they risk a lot? Are they, are they? in unsafe situations in those places?
2: I think parts, you know, Vancouver has been pretty safe ground for the NDP, but there are some ridings that would be up to grabs. And and the thing about affordability is you can measure it, right? You look in your bank account and you can see how much money you have there. And if in three years time, you have no more money than you did three years ago, you're going to blame that on the provincial government. Is my childcare cheaper? Is my transit more affordable? Or can I get around a little bit quicker? You know, how about the rent that I pay? You know, those are the things that can be measured. And I think when you go to the ballot box, and you say I'm still strained. You may try something new, and and that may affect some of the the Vancouver NDP ridings. George Chows clearly is is the one that could be swung again. It was Suzanne Anton's up in the uh, southeast part of the city. Uh, so you know there are ridings in Vancouver that would be in play, but we're we're we, you know we'd, we'd have to measure that when we get closer to an election.
0: I want to swing it right back, yeah. in our last question to the the individual who proved to be a bit of the kingmaker in this case, and I'll. I'll call him Andrew Weaver in this case. Uh, he talked about in the campaign the, if if the party didn't grow to three or four people that you know he wasn't going to stick around. This is not necessarily his you know his mission in life. He now has a really good taste of what this can be in the way of power. Is he long for the game? Do you think, Rob? It's a good question because I don't. You know, he didn't really intend, I
1: think, to stick around past this next election. That was not really his long term game. Uh, he loves politics. He's very good at it. And not a lot of academics translate well into politics, and he has excelled at playing the game. You don't think Ignatius did? Yeah. It, no, okay. no, no. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, it's he's going to have to prove, I guess, whether he's more of a John Horgan or he's a Christy Clark. Does he want to stick around because he loves that idea of the power, or is he just there? To do the job he feels he was called upon to do and he's going to leave voluntarily. People who stick around too long in BC politics find themselves leading and battered on the way out the door. They yeah. don't get to leave voluntarily very
0: often. Yeah. What does the, they say? Like uh, 70% is knowing, you know, knowing when to arrive, but I think about 80% of it is knowing when to leave. Yeah. Um, last question, I, I promise. Uh, what did you each learn about yourselves in doing a book like this?
2: Yeah. It was a big personal journey for me. And I learned. A lot of things about um, being determined to to complete something and to work through it, and you know, I, I I really enjoyed working in partnership with Rob and and understanding, you know, that the people I think want to see others succeed. I you know, I haven't thought I've had to think a lot through the personal growth through this because mm. of everything that's unfolded, and um, I think. The amazing support that we got through the project and following the project uh, was was something you sort of learned that you need in life. You need that support. Yeah. I mean, you need people that have your back that will help you. And, and Rob for sure had my back journalists are themselves the
0: mainly lone wolves. Yeah, they are, are not natural. collaborators. And so it
2: was nice working yeah. together on yeah. this project.
1: Rob? Yeah, well, you know, Richard got put through the ringer, mm-hmm. and uh, we had to do a gut check in the middle of this project <laughs> yeah. to see if we could see it through. Uh, yeah. It wasn't a lot of fun. Because of what happened, but um, I think I learned a lot about uh, you know how deep Richard can dig to get something done, and it, I think you know <laughs> we we had to we had to focus a lot more on ourselves in this book writing than we thought we were going to have to do just to get <laughs> just to get each other through it because originally we just thought we'd write a book and we ended up going through this crazy journey, yeah. uh, and it became. I think, a much stronger friendship for sure.
0: You're back on a first-name basis with the families. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. That's important. They've been really yeah. great too. Very important. Listen, uh, Rob and Richard, congratulations on the book. Uh, terrific Thank you. book and uh, highly recommended. And thanks for spending a lot of time with us today to try to explain intricacies of it. I think we've learned a lot. Yeah, thanks, thanks for fun, having thanks us back. on. I'm Kirk LePoint, the Editor-in-Chief of Business in Vancouver. And you're listening to the BIB interview. Thanks for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time.